Welcome to Textual Anthologies, the podcast series that explores the personal and professional side of creative individuals. My name is Massimo Casagrande, and in this first series, I will be focusing on the slash culture. Today's creative boundaries are blurred more than ever, and with this series, we will explore how the creative industry and creative people are influenced and inspired by other disciplines. Over the next few episodes, I will be having informal conversations with friends, colleagues, and fellow slashers to discover more about their stories, their journey, what makes them tick, and above all, their creative outlets. Enjoy the episode. Today's guest is based in London and is someone I've known for many, many years. She's been called a fashion bouncer by Kim Jones, the artistic director at Your Men's. Pony Step magazine described her as someone who is universally liked. And for some, she's known as the Irish woman on a bed. All are accurate descriptions. However, she prefers to call herself the connector. From PA to DJ, from working with not one, but two Freuds, to co-founding the Netway label Sibling, becoming a brand ambassador, and now talking about her latest project, the Emergency Designer Network, where together with designers Phoebe English, Holly Felton and Bethany Williams, they are galvanizing the local production to help create scrubs for the UK hospitals. I'm happy to welcome today's guest, Cosette McCreary. Hey, Cos. Hello. Nice to see you. How are you? Yeah, you can see my hula hoop. Have you been hula hooping? A little bit, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, this podcast series is, is I've created is to talk to people I know personally, but also mostly to talk about this new slash culture, which actually has been around for quite a while. You know, how we all have different roles uh, and we do different things. I guess jack of all trades, but master of none. I don't know what we are. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I've got no idea, actually. You know, you've always been someone who's always in the forefront of supporting good causes, young talent, and you were in the paper recently, well, for the past couple of months, in The Guardian, in The Telegraph, Vogue, where with Phoebe English and, and other two designers created the Emergency Designer Network in creating PPEs for the hospitals. Yeah, exactly. Well, bas- basically what how it sort of started was um, Holly Fulton, Phoebe English and uh, Bethany Williams, they they had an this idea to start making PPE, well, basically scrubs and gowns for hospitals um, because um, hospitals didn't have scrubs and gowns. Um, and uh, so they kind of like put themselves forward. And well, they originally were working with some people who had like connections to, to government level. And it was all getting very complicated. And then they put up a like a little Instagram posting saying if anybody's interested in kind of being a sort of PA for them. But I know Holly. So I got in touch with Holly and just said, you know, if you want somebody, you know, the two projects I had going are dead. Like the whole thing, I have nothing to do. And then we were like talking to like lawyers, um, all all free which was really great everybody gave us all their all their time everyone volunteered and it became very very obvious that trying to do PPE in the proper PPE way was sort of impossible for us we would have had to have got a factory on board the factory would have had to have made itself completely sterile there was all these different hoops that the government were trying to 
push us into regulations and uh, exactly and also the the frustrating thing was was that actually somebody in the government i'm not sure who which governing body it was had contacted a lot of designers um probably three weeks four weeks before and factories and garment you know people in the garment industry to say would you be able to help and all these people got back, most of them saying, yes, great. And then the government didn't get back. And then meanwhile, you know, talking to, I don't know, whoever, Paul Smith or, or M&S Factory or whoever it was, were literally like saying to us, we've put all our staff on furlough now. So our factory's not open. And we were like, oh, you, you know, are you kidding? So we then just decided just before Easter, we were like, stop this, actually, do you know what? We should just do it. So I set up a GoFundMe and we were like, let's just raise some money and just buy some fabric and let's just see if somebody will be able to to make stuff. We'll put a bit of a, a shout out. Um, and that's sort of how it started. And then I'm not kidding, it was like three <laughs> It was like three months of like feeling you had a show, like in like uh, four days' time. I mean, it was it was exhausting. And that's where you, as sort of the connector, comes in because you were you you know you were sort of going through all your resources and connecting all people together to make this project happen. Yeah, and what I found was um, was really great was you know everyone else was you know the three girls that are also part of this also have their own connections and, and everything else. And Holly made a connection with a woman called Louise who looks after a lot of fat, factories and sort of like around the Leicester sort of area who weirdly ended up being someone I used to go on holiday with when I was a kid. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, we're connecting with people that you knew when you were like sick. Um, <laughs> but the wonders of COVID. <laughs> exactly. But the, the thing with sort of that I found really interesting was um, to be able to talk to other people who do sort of like PR, because like the fashion industry and the PR industry to be fair, get, um, you know, I mean, we're all seen as a bit flaky and, ab fabby and standoffish and you know and everything else and when it came down to distribution and and some like raising money and stuff like that was actually coming through the heads of PR like they were contacting me and saying is there anything we can do and I was like we need money or we need fabric or you know or we need a van or all these type of things and then they were doing you know, we're finding people or using their own, like, matches. We use their their vans. Um, Uke's Net-a-Porter had already set up something called Volunteer Vehicles, which they'd sort of been doing in Italy, and then they opened it up in the UK. Freight Brokers, who are like a courier service that work with DHL, they also work with us. So it was nice because people were thinking outside of, you know, their usual ideas, I mean, they've been so supportive. Esquire as well and um, British GQ and GQ Style. I mean, they've really kind of helped us with everything from writing stuff for the website to posting, you know, Love magazine as well. What's amazing is how I think what we've discovered through COVID is like the sense of solidarity where we literally, we've all sort of come together. And I think, as you're saying, fashion has proved itself 
it's not as frivolous as people think it is. And uh, and the good thing is you had the big brands like Burberry, Paul Smith that you mentioned, but also younger independent brands who sort of managed to turn around their factories and produce stuff that was really necessary for them. And even, for example, milliners like Noel Stewart, Stephen Jones, Philip Tracy, turning again their resources into creating the visors. You know, it, it, it's fantastic. I mean, I think what people sort of forget with, um, you know, when you're, uh, a small designer or if you've run you know a small design business or a small brand or label is that you know we all were a lot on collaborations because that keeps our brand going we all work on very strict budgets or no budget and we support each other and we also come up with solutions really quickly you know, there's even the thing now where we're actually working because uh, Emergency Designer Network, we want it to keep going. We're still getting people asking for scrubs because unfortunately um, hospices and, and some wards in hospitals just don't have the budgets to be able to spend on on, uh, on scrubs. So, and they're stockpiling a little bit. So uh, we're trying to help, but we're also working with the Royal Free Hospital on uh, a new kind of gown you kind of scrub because scrubs are heavy, really heavy weight and um, make you super hot. So we're trying to, we're trialing a few new fabrics. And then on the gown, it's to try and make them reusable because I had no idea that so many garments in the hospitals are one use, single use only, and then they're incinerated. Wow. And that's sort of out of sort of habit and tradition in a weird way. Uh, and we couldn't really get to the bottom of like, well, you know, is it a health issue? Is it, you know, why? And and it sort of boiled down to the fact that the uh, hospital gown can't withstand a 90 degree wash. So we're like, hmm, but we can we can do our scrubs at 90 degrees. So is it just a case of make, you know, and how things are made and heat sealed and all this type of stuff? So we're putting that into into trial at the moment. Awesome. I also saw, I was reading in Vogue UK that there's the community, but like knitting. The knit work. <laughs> that's quite funny because that's actually, uh, I think punning must be an Irish thing. It must be the DNA because Emma, um, who uh, is one of the people that like helped set this up, I've known her forever actually you probably know her from um back in the sort of glory and uh yeah george and dragon days yeah yeah i remember her um yeah she got in touch because actually they were looking to potentially knit masks um again at a time when masks the government was saying no 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 one needs to wear masks she would chat with um her designers and she said that they thought maybe they could do a fundraiser, but they were worried that we would have kind of stopped making scrub. And it seemed very obvious that we were still getting calls for for, for them. So, um, yeah, so she, she got in touch with seven of her designers that they worked with, and they've all given up one of their their designs and it's currently being sold on eBay. So that's like another another set of people that like came together to uh, you know were thinking of how can we support 
you? What is it you need? You know, do you need us? You know, can we knit something or can we do something? Can we be part of like the make of the scrubs or is there anything? And then it was like, well, we need money. So <laughs> perfect. But it's just, it's just so nice how everyone is just so proactive. I usually ask this as the first question, but with you, I did want to start off with the emergency designer network. And the question I usually start off with is, as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? First thing I wanted to be was a train driver, really, really random. Um, and then I found out that couldn't couldn't just become a train driver. You had to, like, you know, work in a ticket office or something. And I was like, nah. And then I was also, I was doing ballet from, like, from being tiny. I did ballet. So I thought I was going to be a dancer. And then I did one of the trials for uh, the ballet school in Richmond Park. And they literally just were like, we think you're going to be too tall. That was kind of the end of that. I also went to a music school. I was playing the cello. So, but I got to, yeah, I was 15 and I decided I also wanted to learn the saxophone. And my uh, headmistress told me that I couldn't. Well, it's not very ladylike. And I said, so winking up my skirt and putting a great big piece of wood between my legs is. Oh my God, I'm sure that didn't go down well. (laughs) (laughs) I got detention for a month. Oh my God. And that was all, that was sort of like the way I was going. I was like thinking, oh, and I had no idea really what I wanted to do. I know when you were young, you met someone by chance who was an influence in your life, who introduced you to this world that would then become your world now. Clubs, the scenes, working the doors, fashion industry. Can you tell us about this encounter? I used to hang around in like um, Sloan Street when I was a teenager and we used to do things like there was like Poochie Pizza. Oh my God, you know, we have a Poochie Pizza in Miami. Do you? Poochie Pizza was like the place. If you were like a bit of a Sloany pony, that's what so it was like. Lots of hair flicking and, you know, velvet headbands. and. Oh, it's the opposite here, but we have a Poochie Pizza. <laughs> Sorry, okay, back, back to who you met and when. I literally went into the gear market on the King's Road, which was like an open, space a bit like penny market but just like really open and I went up to this table and it happened to be uh DJ Fat Tony or just Fat Tony in fact he wasn't even called Tony then these great big double earrings I was obviously like wafting about and he's like what are you looking for and we just started chatting and he said he was working at the what was Camden Palace, which is now Coco, and I should come down. He just put my name down and I could come down. So I decided one night that I would just go. And then after that, he was like, I'm starting to DJ. And then he started DJing at the Cafe de Paris. And then that's how I know Jacques, because Jacques used to do the door. And Karen Bins used to do the door. And Bella Foy's sister, Rose, also at some was doing the door. So is that how you met Bella then through there? I didn't put two and two together that Rose was connected to, like, you know, was related to Bella. And actually I'd met David Dawson, Lucien's assistant, because I used to do Tony's, the door for Tony. He had a night on a Saturday called Fatitude. And how old were you when you were doing this? So I used to do the door for that and I was like 19, I think, 19. Wow. And he would come out, and then I met Lee, and then I met Nicola. Yeah, so David would come out with Giorgio Locatelli, the restaurateur. David actually asked me then if I would meet, but he didn't say who it was. He's like, I'm an assistant to an artist, and he'd like to meet you. I was just like, can't be bothered with it. 
with any of that. <laughs> you turned Freud down. Yeah, and I didn't meet Lucien until I started working for Bella. And I actually started working for Bella. I know that there's an interesting story behind you going to work for Bella. Something happened. I'd fallen out majorly with like my long-term, my sort of first long-term boyfriend. I decided that I was going to go on a kibbutz to piss him off. Like I'd gone out for a drink with a girlfriend of mine who'd just come back from a kibbutz and he said something to me about something and I went, oh, I don't care, I'm going on a kibbutz. And he was like, what? And because I'd said it, I was like, shit, I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. And I was working for Jasper Conran at the time. And How long for? I ended up being there about two and a half years. Might have been a bit longer. Wow, that's a long time to get away from a boyfriend. But uh, jokes aside, you then just wrote Bella a letter, didn't you? I wrote her a letter. And what did you say? I haven't been in the fashion industry for like <laughs> nearly three years. And I love what you're doing. And I don't know if you need any help. I can make a cup of tea. So, um, yeah, so that was that. was that. I was with her for like on and off for about oh, 12 years, I think. But, uh, yeah, I, I did kind of anything. I, I love that. Just write a letter. Just writing a letter. Yeah, exactly. Like, just get on with it. And then finally you met the dad, Lucian Freud. How was that? I was uh, in her kitchen, basically answering the phone. And then she said uh, that her dad wanted to do the invitation. So then he turned up and it was like, oh, so the, oh, so this is your dad. <laughs> the, the, the painting Lucian did for you. How how did that change you? What was he like? That painting allowed me to meet like another strong woman I have like huge admiration for, Mary Beard, who I literally fangirled over when she asked if I would be interviewed for the BBC. It's really odd because I knew Lucien as Bella's dad and I also knew Lucien as someone that I would have lunch with or have dinner with. Um, you know, he he liked to have people around him because he uh, I mean he'd go out a little bit at, at this stage but not really very much so he liked people that went out and did things and report back to him and when did you start sitting for Lucien so I actually started sitting for him Bella was working for Jaeger and Jaeger were bought out and basically all contracts were void and Bella had just had Jimmy I was like thinking I went from having a job kind of like on the Monday to like the Friday, like not having a job. And then I sort of went home and was like, oh, God, like, what am I going to do? I got a phone call out of the blue from Lucian laughing. And I was like, what's so funny? And he's like, you're unemployed. And I went, that's not funny. <laughs> and he went, no, but you can finally sit for me. Yippee. <laughs> no more excuses. Yeah, there was like nothing. There was no me going, I can't do it because I was doing clubs. There's no Bella going, she can't work for you. She's got too much, you know. And he thought it was hysterically funny. So, um, yeah, so then I sat for him and I agreed to three nights a week because it was a night painting. And at the beginning, the painting was smaller because it's actually kind of like life size. It was smaller and Bella was in the front so it was me at the back so actually my painting is kind of like it's the least gynecological <laughs> a lot of his paintings <laughs> because I'm like at the back with my legs straight out most of that was to do with the fact that Bella who was closed 
was actually kind of curled up in front of me. But I think Bella was only in the picture for maybe about two sittings, maybe three sittings. And then I went away for a hen do's that go on for like five days. I went to one of those. And then when I came back, the canvas was back and the canvas had been made bigger and Bella had been removed. And I remember Lucian, me going, where's Bella? And Lucian was like, oh, she's not in it anymore. And you can tell her. I was like, no, you tell her. <laughs> but, <laughs> such a sod. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. But yeah, so then it just became kind of about a picture about me. But everything with it is... Um, uh, I mean, it's difficult. Sitting is, is tough. Um, How many hours did you have to sit for? Well, sometimes it, it, you know, sometimes I would turn up and he'd only actually work with me on the painting for like an hour. Other times, if he felt like it was going well, he would work, you know, for like eight, nine hours. Or we might work for a couple of hours and then we'd go and eat at Sally Clark's or we'd go to Giorgio's. There we go. Giorgio Locatelli, who I spoke about earlier, had opened his own restaurant. So we would go to Giorgio's. You know, so there was... But all of that was kind of around sitting, like actually going out for dinner and going to a party or what have you, just even just like dropping into, I don't know, like Kate Moss's birthday or whatever. That was part of you sitting for him. I speak like he's still around. And he called the painting Irish Woman on a Bed. So, I mean, Mary Beard actually picked, pointed out something. Uh, one of her questions was quite interesting, where she actually pointed out that he very rarely named his paintings unless they were family or they were somebody he'd had, like, uh, a relationship with. So there's so that when you, like, say things like, you know, has it changed you? I mean, it's for people who know me and know it's me, it sort of made me immortal, to quote a friend of mine, which is sort of right. But if nobody knows that that's me, I'm just Irish woman on a bed with a stabbed pillow and a lot of floating cherries. And where is the painting now? Do you know who owns it? Is it here in the UK or is it abroad? So it's in America. It actually is owned by a woman. And I got to meet her. Um, Aquavella Gallery did a an exhibition of Lucian's work called Monumental in New York and she she arrived and she walked in and she was like are you her (laughs) I was like oh my god are you my owner so next time I can get to New York she wants to meet up she has other or she's had other uh paintings of his which doesn't know much about the sort of background to this one so we were going to have a bit of a catch-up And now you are the brand ambassador for Iceberg. What exactly is your role as brand ambassador? Creative director there is uh, is another very old friend. We met at London showrooms, BFC showroom, doing, um, he had Jane Long and I was part of Sibling. When he started working for Iceberg, they they asked him to do a, a catwalk show and he decided that he wanted some people like from his like his own team he wanted to bring me and his sister charlotte in to to help out with the show i helped him with casting the music getting some key press down seeing if there were any vips that we could dress like all of that that was meant to be just for one show which was a february show and then he brought me back in for subsequent shows 
been working with James for about two years now. So when you're consulting for these brands, why do they bring you in exactly? Like what is your role within the company and how do you work with them? A lot of what I do when I when I go in and help out brands, Kim Jonah jokingly calls me the fashion bouncer. Like I, you know, I've always done club doors and stuff. Kim, he just happens to be a friend, but he, the way he described it was actually quite a good way of putting it. So I'll be the, the person between the brand you know, the rest of the business, whether that's the commercial or the finance people or the marketing or the branding or whoever it is and the factories. And then I feed that back to the creative director and try to make the creative director's job easier whilst also trying to make, you know, everybody front of house almost or backstage or whatever it is, their lives easier. That's quite a lot of people to work with. How, how do you deal with it? Like, is it easy? What I find quite astonishing over the years is that, you know, it can be very cliquey within a, a brand. So the factory doesn't speak to anyone beyond the person doing the range planning. And the range planner doesn't speak to the PR. You know what I mean? Like there's so little communication between everyone. And then the creative director is overseeing so much stuff that quite often they don't have a chance to do their own work because they're firefighting little things that are all going off. And, and you know, the first thing that I did with Iceberg was basically call a meeting of everybody, including Patricia, who looks after the factories and just go, OK, so where where are the problems? You know, you know, it's because I basically worked every single part of the supply chain right down to the PR and to doing a guest list and to doing a door. It's bringing all of that experience together and just going, okay, so this problem that we are all having, not just this one person we're all having has a knock-on effect with this person and this person and this person and just try to let people feel like they're being heard that's definitely not an easy task for you to do having to deal with all these people but i guess it's nice for them to have this neutral person that they can talk to um i know that you also work with john galliano and you did something similar right i used to do a bit of work a very long time ago when john galliano set up again how did you meet john I knew John through Jasper for, you know, for years, like just going to raves together. I was brought in to only look after the sales for Japan. It's not easy nowadays being a creative director. A lot of creative directors are put under such huge amounts of pressure. I mean, even like Raph Simmons, you know, with Dior and then Calvin Klein, it, it, there is lots of pressure on, on designers, on, you know. Yeah, huge all the number of collections we have to do a year, the resort, and, you know, it's it's yeah, it's not sustainable mentally to work like that, you know, so... Yeah, exactly. I think what COVID has done is sort of accelerated certain discussions or conversations that had been started but, like, never came to fruition, and now is the time to sort of rethink and restructure. Yeah. I love that they called you the, the, the fashion bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. There's an amazing quote by Katie Grant, editor-in-chief of Love Magazine, where she compared you to Robert Duff of Marc Jacobs, saying, quote, she's doing the mechanics, 
obviously on a different scale, but she makes it happen. Yeah. And you do sort of, you know, you put the key players together, you make, and you do make it happen. It's something I've always admired about you, you know, because you do, you put your money where your mouth is and kind of like, okay, enough with the procrastination and let's get the job done. You know, I think what's really great is people have a lot of respect for me. I think I, I did something in Pony Step. Well, I used to do the door of Pony Step, but I think it's the first issue of Pony Step magazine. And Rich Mortimer actually did the did the interview. And I think he starts off with saying, you know, she's universally liked. And I remember thinking, liked? Ooh. <laughs> like, what is that saying? Oh, she's nice. But actually, you know, I'm very thankful for that. I think that for me, it's a, it's a, it's a genuine thing. I don't set out to like people or be liked by people, but it's a, I hope I give them the sort of the space to be able to talk about what they are feeling that is missing in their, in their jobs or, you know, not necessarily in their, you know, in their life. Although sometimes I do think I should become a therapist, but <laughs> you've got the experience in the background. It's been unorthodox, your, I would say, your your transition into the fashion industry, you know, not having studied it and that. But you started, you know, with Jasper, Bella. Then in 2008, with Joe and Sid, you guys launched Sibling. Yeah. So you've also got the experience of setting up a brand, starting a brand, a knitwear brand as well, which was really great. Yeah, yeah. So you've got all that experience, which now you're using... Uh, you know, in, in, your, in your other roles, which is fantastic. Yeah. And I think what's been really good about, um, you know, about sort of like, as I say, a lot of it has been luck and I have been at the right sort of place at the right time. But I think, you know, I was the one that struck up, you know, we, you know, Tony and I struck up a conversation and, you know, we're still friends. And, you know, because of him, I ended up on the dance floor with Jasper and, you know, and all of the, and because of Jasper, I met John and, you know, there's all these like little like networks. So all these little connections, they all start falling into place. And it, but the thing is, is that you know I'm still friends with Fat Tony now. All these years later, I'm still friends with Jasper now. And it's just keeping those connections going. It's like friendship. And you know, a few people get you know left aside or move on or do something else and you don't end up in that sort of area again. But, you know, there's there's so many times that I've gone into things thinking, oh, I don't know anybody here. And then someone will come up and go, oh, hi, Cassette. And I'll be like, where do I know you from? And quite often it's because I did the door at Boombox, so they know me from Boombox. And thank God I let them in and I wasn't a bitch. <laughs> or if I didn't let them in, I wasn't a bitch. <laughs> But but that's another important thing. First of all, I think it's down to energy. And you do have, not because I'm talking to you now, but because I know you, you do have this radiant energy and you are easy to talk to. You know, again, going back to these like misconceptions people have of people working in the fashion industry, I think you are one of the most approachable people they are. But also I think your position, as you're saying, being a door person at, God, what was before Boombox? Was it? Golf sale? No, what, what, what? Family was, but I didn't adore at family. Um, I, but I used to DJ at family. And golf sale was kind of brilliant because golf sale was, was all my mates. I mean, you know, from Giles to David Waddington and Pablo who were running the bricklayers. 
pub and then you know Chidette Richard Batty who was running the Georgian Dragon and then my friend Guy and I then got a residency DJing every Friday at the George you know and that, that's when I first met you, sort of like DJing there and then the doors at Pony Step and Boombox. And I remember there were people coming from Paris yeah, taking the Eurostar to come to Boombox in Hoxton Square. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you sort of a reference point because, you know, for this established figure, for me, I remember seeing you at all these events and like even now for the younger generation, yeah, you still this reference point. And I wanted to ask, like when you look like when you're DJing now and you see these young kids, the way they dress and the, the way they behave, do you sort of, are you inspired by what they do? Do you kind of go back to maybe James or somebody else you're working with and saying, oh, I saw this, they're wearing things like this, let's try this? Yeah, and the, quite a lot of times I'll do, because I'm like, I'm obsessed with, with social media. I mean, I'm never off it. <laughs> I mean, I just love it. I've got a very, um, I have a very visual brain. Um, I come from a, a line of people with photographic memories, and I think a lot of my memory is is very visual. So that's also made me a good door person because I could remember if you'd been in or not. And people used to try it on, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, no, no, we just went out for like this to get a cigarette. I'd be like, no, 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 no. But yeah, but I think what was amazing about that was I was meeting like all of these people who were, you know, at fashion school or or not at fashion school. Some people were like studying, you know, finance or something because, you know, we're we're in Hoxton, you know, and I feel like I've sort of they've kind of grown up with me in a in a way. And I love to then, you know, I follow loads of people on on Instagram. And I just see what they're, you know, some of them became photographers or stylists or, you know, and I just look at things and I think, oh, that's a really interesting picture. Like, where does that then take me to? If I click on that, will I think something else? So quite a lot of people come to me and say, I want to do a lookbook. I don't know who to use. And then I'll put people forward or I'll put models forward. I mean, I often don't get paid for it or get acknowledged for it. But then I'll see something on their Instagram and I'll think, ah, okay, so that worked. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, sometimes you do it from the goodness of your heart, I guess. You know, it, it, it's it, like, you know, karma. I also, other things I remember about, you were, and I absolutely loved it. Was you and Rebecca Ward doing the fashion pub quiz? Oh my god, with Jack Sonnex. Oh my god, I loved the fashion pub quiz. I actually saw Jack in December for the Dior show here in Miami. And um, do you remember when you used to do the karaoke in the electric showroom? Yes, sing along. <laughs> I just loved that dance floor that sort of lit up. It was so sing along was so brilliant. But again, you know, so that was Princess Julia. I was like always in awe of Princess Julia. I mean, when I first started like going to clubs properly with like uh, Tony, there were there were like these certain people, and you know, and Julia was like one of them. I mean, Lee I knew anyway, so I wasn't really in awe of Lee. Weirdly, um, or Trojan, who I knew, but it was kind of like the women. It was like Rachel Auburn and and Julia and Julia. I was actually I was introduced by the makeup artist Leslie Chilks. But I was literally like, oh, my God, it's like Princess Julia. Like these really strong women, you know. For those who don't know who Princess Julia is, how would you describe her? 
She's like an icon. She's like a London icon. Yeah, she's she's another slash person. She's a DJ slash model slash muse slash, you know, I mean, writer. I mean, her writing is incredible. She's now painting. During lockdown, she was writing poems. She's just another one and, and a real, like, a huge supporter of, of uh, newness. I mean, a lot of people will know Princess Julia if they see the Fade to Grey, Visage Fade to Grey video. She's, she's in that, you know, if anyone wants to Google that or YouTube that. Are you someone that kind of looks back or more looks forward in the sense, do you miss the scene from the past? Do you think something is missing today? Or is there a new energy around, especially in the club scene, the dance scene and the youth scene? Um, there's a, another friend of mine called Mark Moore, who um, is a big DJ. He's uh, probably most famous for his work with S Express. And I remember being in a at a party with him, like a real like grimy sort of electro clash kind of Hoxton rave basically and we were like standing there and he said isn't it great that we don't both stand here going oh this isn't like blah 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 we're both just like oh my god this is so amazing you know it's just, it's just a new energy I never want to become that person that feels like I'm too old for something I think I just have to go and I don't know live in a hut if I get to that, <laughs> to that point I, I, I doubt you'll get to that point do you place a lot of importance on criticism? You know, and the fashion industry is a big one and definitely should be criticised for a lot of the things it does and, and recently has been. And I think that's that's good. But there's justification for that criticism. You know, I work quite a lot with like students and things like that. And sometimes I do think, OK, just this, I like to critique this, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to completely flatten this person because frankly I don't know if I could have come up with that idea or have made that or so it's like okay so how can how can we make this so that this is a positive thing or something positive comes out of criticism I agree with you I mean before speaking you need to do your research you know as you said it's 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 almost I always tell the students that I work with that fashion is almost like being a being a visual lawyer if, yeah if you're talking about something have the research behind to back it up because yeah absolutely and also there's lots of criticism on social media and you know quite bad and i feel sorry for the youth because there's all this pressure on always being perfect and lots of mental issues with with young people because of social media and and the bullying like what, what are your thoughts on that yeah one of the big problems with the uh with social media is that you can hide behind it and you can say these like, you know, awful remarks, but your handle might be complete, not your name. You can do it kind of anonymously and your, you know, your platform is private. So nobody can kind of get, you know, and there's just that sort of trolling kind of things. I mean, to me, that just seems like so much energy and for what in a way. You know, I just half the time I just want to say to them, like, yeah, but what, why are you so upset? Here you go, therapist again. <laughs> That's another slash we're going to add to your name, the therapist. Generally just, just slashing, slashing away. So what is your opinion on the future of Fashion Weeks? Are shows going to come back? Are we going to stick to digital? There's so many restrictions now also on how many people can attend a show, how many people we have in a room. What are your thoughts on all of this? 
there was a good thing in the New York Times actually today, and it's about the um, the kind of unsung people of Fashion Week. Basically, you know, those of us that used to have jobs during showtime, <laughs> you know, COVID, yay! But my friend Jacques, who used to do the door at the Cafe de Paris back in the day, um, who I've known since forever through Judy Blame and, and things like that, he's actually in it and he's quoted in it. And there's that whole thing of, you know, his positive way of thinking about it is if shows come back in September, which from the Milan kind of uh, chats that have been going on, it looks like that's going to happen. And it seems like Chanel wants to do something and Dior Women's want to do something. So should those things come back, that actually the important people are going to be the door people and security. So, you know, it, it's that kind of thing but then you know because people I, I'm on like all these different kind of like fashion things on Facebook and stuff and everybody goes ah you can't have a show how do you regulate it you know blah all this type of stuff and it's like actually do you know what if you invite people to a show and you have staff and you have regulations and you seat them in a way and it's a job for all these people um you know including the people that are turning up to the shows then it's going to be better policed than blooming soho was last night of all the components and all your roles is there one that sort of is your favorite yeah, I mean, what I really like is to be able to kind of like roll my sleeves up and just go, okay, what needs doing? What needs to get done? And what, you know, and how how are we going to do this? Not how am I going to do this? You know, for someone who actually, you know, is not very good at delegating <laughs> when it comes to personal projects myself, having known that from sibling, it's like, no, I'll just do, do as much as I possibly can. Um, you know, it's like, how can we make this work better? So I, I very much like doing that. And I like to be seen. I like it when I see that people are working together in a really good, constructive way. And that the person who's been brought on, if it's a creative director, or it's a designer, or whoever it is, or the head of press, or whoever it is who's called me in and needs a little bit of backup, because quite often it is they just want they just want to be acknowledged in a lot of time. So for me, that's kind of like the best thing. The one of the nicer parts of my job when I can see things are, are moving and are working well and people feel supported. And if I've been able to do that, then you know, or if I've been able to open up this brain and you know the, all of those kind of things. Or if it's just a case of, I know a new photographer who I think you should work with, or there's this model who I've seen who I think you should work with. If I've been able to just, you know, even if they look at it and just go, what the hell is she talking about? At least I maybe have triggered something else off another little chain of events. Of course. And it's rewarding for you when you see sort of, the penny drop or you see that they're taking your advice on board like you were saying before if you go into the instagram page and you sort of see something yeah it's a eureka moment in your head because you know that you've had a part to do with it yeah so it's thanks to you yeah absolutely and it's nice to feel that you've um you know like with with emergency designer network you know i mean it's so empowering for it to be you know women for a start and you know and we decided to do this and we did it and it's still going and we're still talking to each other and it's not about ego because you know a lot of times in fashion 
I, I mean, I have to say that there is, you know, sometimes I'm brought in because there is one link in the chain whose ego is often bigger than the head designers. And I'm brought in to just try to rebalance things a little bit, you know, so, so, um, yeah, it's so nice when you can do something and then, you know, with EDN, we get pictures back from people in hospitals and stuff with big thank you signs. I've seen on Instagram because the people have been posting that and it's, it's so nice. You know, it's such a great initiative. Cosette, thank you so much. For rabbiting on as per usual. <laughs> no. <laughs> and see you soon. Yes. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I would just like to share with you the website for the Emergency Designer Network, www.emergencydesignernetwork.org. Go to this page, click on the GoFundMe link and help support this great initiative. I look forward to inviting you next week to our next episode. So stay tuned, stay safe and speak soon. Bye.